Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast. A weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Himra Chanel, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Ave, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Hear now a reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Shout loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their crime, to the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day, desiring knowledge of my ways, like a nation that acted righteously, that didn't abandon their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, wanting to be close to God. Why do we fast and you don't see? Why afflict ourselves and you don't notice? Yet on your fast day, you do whatever you want and oppress all your workers. You quarrel and brawl, and then you fast. You hit each other violently with your fists. You shouldn't fast as you are doing today. If you want to make your voice heard on high, is this the kind of fast I choose, a day of self-affliction, of bending one's head like a reed, and of laying down in mourning and clothing yourself in ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose, releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated and breaking every yoke? Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and God will say, I'm here. If you remove the yoke from among you, the finger-pointing, the wicked speech, if you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, your light will shine in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the noon. The Lord will guide you continually and provide for you. Even in parched places, God will rescue your bones You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water that will not run dry. They will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore. You will be called mender of broken walls, restorer of livable streets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please pray with me. God of love, God of possibilities. We thank you today. We thank you for this assembled family. We thank you for this time and place. And now I humbly ask 
that you remove me, empty me out. Let me be the vessel of your truth, of your love, and of your discernment in this time. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who watches and advocates for us. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who enables us to be here together. It is in your son's name I pray. Amen. God of our weary years. So here's what's funny. I have quite a few people here who I know and I'm grateful to see today. Of course, I'm grateful to Pastor Darcy for the invitation. Um, and of course, also to Pastor Henry for the hospitality and the incredibly large shoes I have to fill on the second weekend of Black History Month. Um, but I do see so many people here who I know and love and cherish, and I'm happy to be here with today. And so that should be no pressure. But yet and still, that's not quite what's happening right now. Um, so this is gonna be a little bit of a departure for those of you who have heard me speak or preach before. Um, because it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting season for me. It's been an interesting week, I think, for all of us here in the United States. Um, it's definitely been an interesting winter. And so, um, something happened to me right before I was ordained in November. It probably started around October. I was working as a hospital chaplain at the Atlanta VA um, healthcare system. And I actually love that work. I love working with my vets. Um, you really get to learn how to distill your spirituality when you're talking to a bunch of like no nonsense people who really don't have time for platitudes. And so um, it, was a, it was great for my growth edges. Um, but in doing that work, um, in connecting with veterans, specifically around bereavement and grief, that is my area of specialty, palliative care and hospice care. So kind of meeting people either at the end of their lives or at a pretty dark time for them physically and emotionally and spiritually. Um, I, I kind of learned to embrace like the darkness, right? The stickiness of life. Um, but then that also opened up my vulnerability as far as like emotions and sharing in ways that my Candler family probably will not recognize because that is not how I was at Candler. And so I have been on an emotional roller coaster, as I said, since October 2019. And so we're just gonna ride this out and whatever happens, happens. I could start laughing in the middle of this. Right, it's cool. <laughs> I was like, or, because what I'm feeling right now is I'm feeling like a lot of emotions well up as far as um, wanting to cry for a couple of different reasons, right? So one of these reasons is literally the joy of being with family, of seeing my familiar faces, seeing people who have supported me and loved me and held me in this journey, because ordination was a journey. But then part of it is, this is the first time for me as a preacher um, or as a speaker that I have not been able to reconcile what is happening around me with the God that I know. 
And having grown up and giving honor to my ancestors, Rosa Jones Howard, who was a Church of God in Christ missionary and evangelist in Alabama in the second jurisdiction and growing up on all those back roads of traveling with her to do revivals, to teach women from down there because it's the Church of God in Christ, so she could never be up here teaching. And being a descendant of Odell Homer Stevenson, my paternal grandmother, who was a Kojic missionary in Northern California where I'm from, and never having stepped foot in this area, but always doing her pastoring at her kitchen table, always doing her missionary work outside her front or back door of her little track row house in East Palo Alto, California, always changing the lives of battered women around her, addicted men around her, with the little money that she had as the help I know whose shoulders I stand on right now. And this is so awesome in the big sense. That little old me in here where my grandmothers could not be, where my aunts kind of sort of still can't be, right? And so that weight kind of settled on me. So, so my grandmothers, my ancestors, Ashe. <clears throat> Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died, yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our forebears died and sighed. November 18th, 2019, a group of black mothers walked up a staircase of 2928 Magnolia Street, a long vacant three bedroom house in Oakland, California, and they opened the door. They didn't have to pick the lock. It was already a vacant trap house that had been abandoned by its previous tenants. And so they, five black women, and their children moved in. Eventually, law enforcement found out that these five families, families of working women, single mothers, raising their children, experiencing housing insecurity because it's Oakland, California, it's Northern California, the land of milk and honey for Silicon Valley, but for those of us who are generations of being black and brown in Northern California, who literally grew up in those neighborhoods and were then forced out because of gentrification, those women were considered the squatters. Because of course we're here to protect property, not the people inside the property. And so that a two month battle began of women and their neighbors rallying around them, literally working their two and three jobs a day, keeping their children as safe as they could, coming home, taking turns to be vigilant so that they couldn't be locked out. This is the face of resistance in Northern California. And in January, Oakland PD 
armed with a tank in SWAT gear, other tactical gear, forcibly evicted these women. And so in the year of our God, 2020, considering we're at the 60th anniversary of key civil rights acts of resistance in this country that were fought here, were noted as far as what was happening in the Southeast. We still have to engage our black bodies in resistance. And resistance looks like a lot. That was an open act of resistance. That was literally speaking truth to power and saying, these houses are sitting empty while developers wait to turn them into luxury condos or really swanky townhomes that, as I said, generations of Californians can't afford. There were 57 days of occupation before the evacuation. One of those mothers, Dominique Walker, 34 years old, she had literally fled to California fleeing domestic violence from Mississippi. But she couldn't afford to stay literally down the street because rent there was $8,000 a month for a two bedroom. These women who are known as moms for housing, and you should definitely um, consider looking them up because they are still doing work, became to me a very painful reminder in this month, Black History Month, which yay, we get 29 days now, so I'm so excited. <laughs> I was like, I get to celebrate in the extra day month. I'm like, okay, this is good. Bring to mind for those of us of faith, those of us who care, that black history is now. As Pastor Henry was saying, our icons are living and here and dynamic. Black history is love and resistance and joy and pain. And there is so much work still to be done. I'm gonna go back to Isaiah for a little bit. Because when I first realized what day I was preaching on, I'm lectionary based, I was really excited because when we have heard this before in Protestant churches, we always focus on the last few verses. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your knees in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And this is where um, Reverend William Barber's um, movement, anti-poverty movement comes from, right? The repairs of the breach. And so through Tuesday, I had my great, shiny, happy, we're doing good work here, it's Black History Month, let's celebrate because we are the repairs of the breach. Even as I thought about what was happening back in my hometown, even as I myself actually just fled insecurity, economic insecurity here in Atlanta, which is why I'm in Massachusetts now. I was grateful for that miracle. And then Wednesday came. 
It's Black History Month, and yet, one of the most puerile purveyors of prejudiced pap received the Medal of Honor. In my country, my America, there was yet another sham of a trial, this time on the national stage, actually the international stage. And no matter where you fall politically, because it's not about that for me, it's about if we set up these institutions to be triers of the truth, if we tell our children every day in class in social studies or history that these institutions, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that this is what we rely on as the bedrock of why we are here, why people risk their lives literally to come here, even when we see the images of families washing up against our shores, their idea of the land of milk and honey. And the truth was literally silenced, actively, cravenly. It's a devastating blow. And so that was my Wednesday, as far as what was happening globally. And then my Wednesday, personally, working at a college, and the work that I do, I absolutely love. The diversity, equity, and inclusion piece is great because basically, I get to throw parties for people and make sure that they're culturally competent. <laughs> Literally had a couple of discussions about Lunar New Year when they were actually trying to plan the Black History Month like menus. I was grateful that the head chef at the dining hall was like, Southern food okay? Is it good? And I was like, no, it's not. Not just Southern food. And having the conversation of, are you asking to make Creole food? Are you asking to make specific, like Mississippi Delta comfort food? Or are you just asking about what we know, right? Fried chicken, watermelon, blah, 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 blah. Because that's where I work. It's fine. Um, but I still love that, right? Because it's an engaging of my culture, other cultures, and doing it respectfully. And then I got to the sucky part of my job, which is students being hurt by microaggressions, not even being able to name that they're microaggressions, but just being tired of being the one in class, having one of my Southeast Asian students complain because people asked her if she spoke Hindi. and realizing that there's so much more work to do. So how can I be complacent, much like the people in Isaiah, right? We go through the motions. We do the rituals. As I said, we do our celebratory lunches. I put out my emails about, this month is X, and so we will do that. Or please, let us all remember that diversity is a fact. Equity and inclusion are values. And this is what we're trying to promote, not just at this college, but literally in this world. So then how could I come here on Sunday with all of this and get back to the Hopi McChangey? And it's hard. It's really hard. Literally, if I had just tried to bump Henra and preach last week, I'd have been there. <laughs> In there. Or if I'd switch with Amina, 
for next week, I probably would have been there again. It would have been good. But here I am on this week of all weeks. I don't know how many of you all are familiar with Austin Channing Brown. Awesome. Shorthand. So I am basically Austin's sister. As I said, I'm from Northern California, but it's the same principle of growing up with Southern parents who taught me, one, you have to do twice as much to get half as far. Two, even though my brother named me, your name is neutral enough that you could probably advance a lot of ways without people actually having to see you. And three, when people finally see you, you have to be like the good one enough that they're not threatened by you. So I have spent over 40 years, well, about 40 years, because I stopped a few years ago, but I spent about 40 years making sure I was one of the good black women. Not the angry black women who we you know, see lampooned on TV in movies often by our own cis black brothers. That's another sermon. Um, but I worked hard for the education. I know that I was afforded part of this education by my parents sacrificing for us, for I and my siblings. And I knew that as a church girl growing up in the church, there was a level of respectability even above that that we always had to achieve. And I worked to achieve that. Even as it chafed against me, like even as a teenager, wondering why my grandmothers could not stand up here, knowing that, well, that's just how it is, right? That's just what life is. And seeing the acts of resistance that my grandmothers performed in the black church, even if I could not articulate them. So no, my grandmother in her home church would never be in the pulpit. But when my grandmother was an evangelist in the back roads of the small woods churches in rural Alabama, she most certainly was up here teaching people, men and women. And I thought that's how we do resistance nowadays. Like that's what my generation does for resistance. We weren't gonna be out in the streets. You know, we weren't gonna do the die-ins. We were going to work and be middle class and show everyone that we were the same because we acted the same as everyone else. Even if we didn't look the same, we were gonna get close. And so I really empathize with the children of Jacob in Isaiah because I was doing the same thing. I was doing all the right things, going to the right churches. I'm a member of a sorority making sure that what I represented was pleasing, not just to God, but to my American siblings, so that I could live as well as possible with as little fear, as little trepidation as an American, even as a black American. And then, I can't even say it was like one huge light bulb moment, but I began to realize in my 30s how tiring this was getting for me. I kept 
praying to God for different changes, wondering why our country just seemed to be growing more and more hostile. And Isaiah tells us, but what was I actually doing, right, as I'm living my individualistic life? What was I changing? Like, what was I actually changing? A couple of donations here and there. Sure, I was a member of the NAACP executive board. Was I putting myself on the line for my siblings who do experience housing insecurity? Was I actively like feeding those who had food insecurity? Was I making myself vulnerable to those who were the most vulnerable? I wasn't. I wasn't, and that's why this convicts me. And I say I cannot race to verses 11 and 12. And really, we need to kind of stay with verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? I was hiding myself from my own kin. And by that I mean y'all, everybody, right? We are kin, we are siblings. And I wasn't being authentic and even what I was trying to do. And I was trying to do good, of course, but I was hiding myself. So yay, today you get to see me. Me, who is an angry black woman. Oh my God, thank you. Because we're not there yet. We, especially as Christians, we make the pivot so quickly. We know during Easter season, sure, we do our Good Friday rituals, right? We do our Monday, Thursday rituals, but we immediately go to Sunday. We immediately want the next piece. We immediately want Pentecost. We immediately want, it's bad, but it's gonna be all right. And sometimes we just have to sit. And right now I'm sitting. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. And that's the tension I'm resting with right now. Because this anger is okay. There is a lot that's happening right now. And whatever acts of resistance we can think of, literally small acts of resistance, they will, yes, build. And the tide will change. But I'm gonna be honest, I can't see it right now. And I need to, as Austin writes, live in the shadow of hope for a minute. Because anger also propels us. Anger propels us to change. Anger propels us to want something different for ourselves. Anger propels us out of complacency. And I think that's where we are right now, to be honest. As I said, this is not about Iowa caucuses that's just an indicator of what's going on. It doesn't matter if you like a donkey or an elephant or you wanna blow the whole system up because you're an anarchist. Cool story, I hope you make it happen actually. Um, 
because like, it's time to wreck stuff. And it could just be what's happening in your home. You need to make a change. As I said, I had to leave the state to make a change and to realize like, this isn't getting me anywhere. Being the non-angry black woman, being the one who has to couch her words so gently so you can understand the intersections of the oppression that I might be occurring. We always talk about speaking truth to power as people of faith. No one said whisper truth to power, right? Like God tells Proto, I'm sorry, not Proto, Trito Isaiah. I was like, not first Isaiah, third Isaiah. Literally, God is saying, shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. So as I make a pledge to move forward in my spaces, to shout out against injustice, to help my siblings break the yokes of oppression, whatever the oppression looks like. I really, really, really need y'all to have my back, because this is scary. It is very scary to move towards the change that we need to end up being the repairers of the breach. And I'm reconciling the fact that as I get ready to make these movements, there could be threats. There could be threats to my life, let alone my work, family, whatever I do. But I'm feeling the compulsion that this is the time. We've reached a level where it's, to me, put up or shut up. And as I said, I'm scared. Because I have to wear my anger on the outside and not wear the mask that Austin talks about. Before I sit down, I just wanted to read one snippet from Bell Hook's Killing Rage. It was um, a collection of essays written um, in the 90s. So this is before she actually continued doing her own spiritual work and moving towards love and reconciliation and what that looks like. But these words still sit with me. She was talking about Cornell West, talking about Malcolm X. Cornell West included a chapter in his most recent collection, Malcolm X and Black Rage, where he makes rage synonymous with great love for black people. West acknowledges that Malcolm X articulated black rage in a manner unprecedented in American history. Yet he does not link that rage to a passion for justice that may not emerge from the context of great love. By collapsing Malcolm's rage and his love, West attempts to explain that rage away to temper it. Overall, contemporary reassessment of Malcolm's political career tend to deflect away from killing rage. Yet it seems that Malcolm X's passionate, ethical commitment to justice served as the catalyst for his rage. The rage was not altered by shifts in his thinking. It is clear it is the clear defiant articulation of the rage that sets Malcolm X apart from contemporary black thinkers and leaders who feel that rage has no place in anti-racist struggle. Anger is good. Be angry and do not sin. And so my act of resistance is sharing my anger in a constructive way. 
in a destructive way in the sense of doing my part to dismantle systems of white supremacy, systems of oppression. But it is also, as I said, constructive because when we dismantle, we then get to create. And so I'm calling on everyone as I do this shaky, scary, terrifying, angering walk of dismantling to reconstruct, to join me. The end of that verse of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which was written by James Weldon Johnson and was called the Negro National Anthem and now we call it the Black National Anthem, states, we have come over a way that with tears have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last, where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into a world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God that created you loves you. And empowers you to love boldly, live inclusively. And serve creatively. Creatively.